go find some people because people are what going to or what, what you know it's what's going to get you through it and that that was i think that's probably what i was saying is that the difficult part was trusting the people that were around me because the information that i would get from some people was not solid and that's that's not the what we dealt with in the marine corps yeah i remember the first manager i had i worked at a grocery store in a little town next to weatherford oklahoma and clinton oklahoma and the civilians have a view of the way the marine corps is and it's incorrect it's just not the same and unless you've actually been in that environment, you don't really know what it's like. You've seen movies, but that's not what it's like. And he would talk to me and he would use anecdotes about, well, when you were in the Marines, did this and this and this. And I just wanted to say, hey, man, that's not the way it is. Like, I know you think that's the way it is, but that's not the way it is. So that was that was tough having my boss try to Marine me when he wasn't a Marine. Yeah. And, and I don't know how to call him out on it because it was just a weird environment. I didn't know how to say, Hey man, you, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And, and it kind of in in an angry way, I don't want to say that, but I was like, you just, just be quiet. Yeah. Like, leave me alone. (laughs) Tell me what I need to do and I'll get it done. But don't come and talk to me about Marine stuff. You don't know what it's like. Welcome to winning strategies playbook. The podcast where we welcome business leaders, CEOs, and industry experts to discuss the rise to the top, building wealth, and real estate insights. Here's your host, Jeremy Spann. Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook. For more information on this show, you can go to myexperiencedrealtor.com. That's experienced with an ED. You can click on podcasts and download this episode, other episodes from all the different platforms that are on the website there, or you can even listen to this episode from the website directly. And of course, if you're looking to buy and sell real estate anywhere on the planet, even if it's outside of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex and you need a span group quality team to be able to help you or individual, go back to the homepage, click find a trusted professional, and we will get you connected. But today... You can go and click on Justin Harlan and read more to learn about my good friend, fellow Marine, dentist. He used to knock teeth out. Now he fixes them, or he can knock your teeth out and fix them and charge you. So welcome to the show, Justin. How's it going? Outstanding, Jeremy. Glad to be here. I'm glad you are here, buddy. Well, I have to start every one of these off with a dumb joke. Bring it. All right. So I do this to annoy my father-in-law. And, and I think I got one that's fitting for you. You ready? I'm ready. What's the best time to go to the dentist? Nighttime. Tooth early. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I told you they would, I told you it would be bad. They're, they're, they're intentionally bad. They're intentionally bad. So what's going on in your world today? Man... What a shift <laughs> from where we were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and to where we are now. Complete shift. What a change the past year has brought for healthcare in general. Man, where are we going? Who knows? Yeah, obviously, the, the biggest market right now is healthcare. That's a great place to throw investment if you're interested in it. And I think the biggest change in dentistry that's going on right now was a roll-up. It's consolidating a lot like medicine did 15 years ago. It's not going to be the same 10, 15 years from now. It'll be a little bit the same, but there'll be a lot more bigger, larger groups of dentists out there than there have been in the past. COVID is a big instigator of that for sure. And for me, the change has been changing identity from being a businessman, being turning into a businessman from a dentist. I have a lot more interest in that. I was talking with my bookkeeper two days ago, and she had no idea of my plans of letting go of some dentistry and focusing more on business. And she said, you know, that's not normal. I said, well, I'm not normal anyways. Um, most dentists want to give up the business and really focus on dentistry. I'm the opposite. I would rather let go of a lot of the dentistry and focus on the business side. Why is that? So, 
I think I've always loved business. I just never realized it until I got into dentistry. I, I remember the first couple of years that I was practicing, I would we had to do certain continuing education classes every year. And I always did the ones that had to do with leadership and business and management. And I never really focused on the actual T stuff. And I think it was a small indicator saying that's where your interest really lies in growing and developing people. We're in the people business. Employees, patients, that's what we do. We take care of people. And I like that aspect of it. And your your main office is in Fort Worth. It's in Fort Worth. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, did you grow up always wanting to be a dentist? No. All right. Well, let's go back and turn the hands of time back where the beginnings came in for Justin. <laughs> Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go? How'd this get started? Man, I'm Fort Worth born and raised. Kid grew up on the east side of Fort Worth. I did actually leave this place for a while, but I I, I, I came back. I came back because I, I like the people of Fort Worth. The scenery here isn't as great as all the places I've traveled to, but the people really make it an incredible place to raise kids and, and run business and relate with folks. And it's just a really cool place to be in the world. Um. No, there is no magical story about how I ended up in dentistry. Like when I was eight years old, I had a tooth and I know that's not the way it worked for me. When I was eight years old, I was going in the military and I knew it. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was going in the military. And, you know, fast forward 10 years after that. And yeah, I headed on a little plane over to San Diego and had a little summer camp at MCRD. Became a Marine. Earn the title. Earn the title. Earn the title. And you were in for how many years? Four years. Four years. What years was that? 93 to 97. 93 to 97. And then, so you, where, where, where were you stationed at? So primary, so I did all the training in Southern California. I, I was a radio operator, so it was 29 Palms. That's where our comm school was. The stumps. The stumps. Uh, that was like the first six months. And after that, I went to Okinawa. I was in Okinawa for a year with an artillery headquarters battery and, and artillery, just being a guy in a radio platoon, and then I transferred to North Carolina. Where, where were you in Okinawa? Camp Foster. Foster. Okay. Um, it, it was really strange. People don't know this, but we say Okinawa, but there's actually like ten bases. Ten bases, yeah. and we're all spread out all over. And they had the artillery battalions in an area where we couldn't actually shoot the guns. <laughs> so every time we would go to shoot the guns, we would have to load all the trucks up and drive up to Camp Hansen, which was a little over an hour away from us, to go be in the field to shoot the guns and run the radios and do all the stuff that we did. So it was a logistical movement to get everybody up there and back safely with all the equipment. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was a bit ridiculous. Yeah, I, I Hansen is the pivot point because I was up yeah. there on Schwab. Mm-hmm. Which means there was nothing at Schwab, yes. right? So There's, we would go down to Hanson and go out to Senville outside the <laughs> base there and do all the drinking and hanging out and everything else. Mm-hmm. And if you missed the bus, the Liberty bus, well, a long walk back That's to Schwab, a long yeah. way back right there. And so, so you leave there and you go. You, where'd you say you went? North Carolina. Went North Carolina. Yeah. I got dropped in a comm battalion, and quickly I got picked up to be in a mew. They would farm out all the radio explain, operators. Explain what a, a comm battalion and a mu is. The so comm battalion is a it's a it's a huge group of communication type stuff, big trucks, big vans, radio operator guys like me who were just man packed battery power grunts is really what we were, and they would they would send guys like us two different places. And then there were certain guys that just stayed in a comm battalion. A comm battalion was, was huge. So a normal battalion size is what, like 500 guys or something. This was probably 700. Mm. It was huge. Lots of companies, lots of, there was a lot of people in there. It, it, it was not a great place to be because nobody really had any purpose other than, okay, what do you do? How do you do? So, and I remember, I'll tell you a story about, i so I had a little bit of time left, and I was sit- sitting in the combatant, and I asked my gunny, I said, gunny, what happens if we go to war? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, so if we go to war, like, where does me, where does Corporal Harlan go? And he said, well, we're probably going to send you to the grunts. And I said, okay, well, why am I just not with the grunts now? 
I, I, I don't want to be the extra guy. I'd rather just be in it now. But that's just the way the Marine Corps was established with the communication battalions. There's three battalions uh, back then. And so they would farm us out. So I got farmed out to the command element of a Marine Expeditionary Unit. That's the America's 911 float force. We're always out there floating at sea. Amphibious ready groups that's with the whole battle group. So aircraft carriers and all that stuff. I hope the audience understands all that. (laughs) Close enough. (laughs) So I was part of the command element, which means we were the the, uh, MU commanders, the colonels, radio operators. And within there, they would send us out. So at the time, they had just rolled out a new satellite communication system in the Marine Corps. It had probably been out in the rest of the military forever. But, you know, the Marine Corps, we get the last dibs on stuff. So we tactically, we had not integrated that communication system within infantry battalions or anything. And so it, was, it gave a direct communication from wherever we were on the ground to the ship. And that wasn't normal. Sometimes you had to go through channels to get information straight to the colonel so you can make decisions about what was going to happen. So we were one of the first MUSE to do that and for them to farm us out. So I, I, I carried radios for all kinds of people, infantry, air wing, logistical. I mean, wherever they needed a guy with a radio, I was the guy they sent out. Me and the guys in my platoon they sent us out. So I did that for a year. We had to do workups and stuff, and then we were out in the med. We were in, we were there during Bosnia, so all the stuff that was going on with Bosnia. The Mew that rescued Captain Scott O'Grady, mm-hmm. we relieved them. So we set off the coast of Bosnia because it was we were about to get hot there for a while. We 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 were it was about to get nasty. In fact, so much so that they had, we stopped in Sicily to pick up cold weather gear because they were ready for us to go hit the ground and and start fighting, and it didn't happen. So they didn't call our number, and I went back, and I had a year left. And I could have gone back out again. I said, I, I, I need to apply for college, and it's almost impossible to apply for college while you're floating on a ship. It's <laughs> a lot of this – is, This is also before, before, before the major internet age, there, right? There was no internet. <laughs> so I had to type a letter on a word processor and send it out. And, yeah, I was like, I'd rather do that back at Lejeune then be out there on base to do that. So I spent the last year at Camp Lejeune. And then, so where did you go to college? So I went to Southwestern Oklahoma State University. My girlfriend was there going to pharmacy school. And turns out it was a really amazing school. It's a small school in Weatherford, Oklahoma. And it was perfect for a guy transitioning out of the Marine Corps. Uh, that was that was probably one of the toughest times in my life. Not even being a wartime Marine, just coming out, just that transition to civilian life was was not easy for me. Talk talk about that more. Why uh, is that? It, one of the stories I can tell is I remember the first week or two in chemistry lab. Granted, it's been four years since I've been in high school. It's been five years since I've done anything to do with chemistry or labs. Or I mean, I didn't. I'm just a dumb marine. I didn't know what a Bunsen burner was, and so with this gear list of things that we had to pull out of the drawers, and I'm trying to grab all the stuff, and I don't know what's what, and I'm looking over to my buddy, who's not my buddy. He's just a freshman in college, and in the Marines, he would have easily go, "Hey, man, let me help you out," and nobody helped me out. And so I had to go seek help. And that was not what I was used to. And that was one of the big slaps in the face. It's like people don't have their back or have your back in the civilian world as they do in the Marine Corps. And, and the Marines, yeah, I may, if I wouldn't have known my gear, I may, I may have gotten hell for it. But at least someone was there to help me. I knew someone was there to always look over me. And, and I had somebody to go to in the civilian world. It just it didn't exist. And that was hard. That was, a, that was a hard transition, knowing I was just out here on my own. If I needed to know something, I really had to go seek it out. I had no one to talk to. Yeah, I, re- I remember that feeling, and I've talked about it on these episodes, is, you know, when I got out, you know, I was all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, thinking, all right, Marine vet, everybody's going to want to hire me. And, mm-hmm. you know, one job interview to the next, to the next, to the mm-hmm. next, of just sitting there going, didn't really seem like there was any, you know, helpful guidance right right and then so we're forced to go figure it out yep right so you go and you figure it out and what's what do you figure out what do you, what are the next steps for you go find some people because people are what going to or what, what you know it's what's going to get you through it and that that was i think that's probably what i was saying is that the difficult part was trusting the people that were around me because 
the information that I would get from some people was not solid. And that's, that's not the, what we dealt with in the Marine Corps. Yeah. I remember the first manager I had, I worked at a grocery store in a little town next to Weatherford, Oklahoma and Clinton, Oklahoma. And, uh, civilians have a view of the way the Marine Corps is and it's incorrect. It's just not the same. And unless you've actually been in that environment, you don't really know what it's like. You've seen movies, but that's not what it's like. And he would talk to me and he would use anecdotes about, well, when you were in the Marines, did this and this and this. And I just wanted to say, hey, man, that's not the way it is. Like, I know you think that's the way it is, but that's not the way it is. So that was that was tough having my boss try to Marine me when he wasn't a Marine. Yeah. And, and I don't know how to call him out on it because it was just a weird environment. I didn't know how to say, Hey man, you, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And, and it kind of in, a, in an angry way, I don't want to say that, but I was like, you just, just be quiet. Yeah. Like, leave me alone. <laughs> Tell me what I need to do and I'll get it done, but don't yeah. come and talk to me about Marine stuff. You don't know what it's like. Yeah. So that, that was another, another story of just the transition of not understanding how I fit in the world. I think that was the hardest part. Well, and I mean, there's so much structure in the military in general, mm-hmm. and especially in the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. right? And then you get out, and it's literally like the Wild West. There's no structure. There's no one really giving you any guidance. There's nobody saying, hey, do this, don't do that. Mm-hmm. And it's why I, I take a lot – I spend a lot of energy mentoring, transitioning military folks, you know, especially Marines. Mm-hmm. When they're making that transition to go, hey, let me tell you what it is and isn't. Because I didn't have anybody tell me what it is and isn't. I had to go figure it out. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think even after two and a half decades, I'm still somewhat figuring it out, right? Yep. yep. You're also, you know, and I say this on many shows, is whether it's your decision or the Marine Corps' decision, one day you're going to put that uniform on for the last time. Mm-hmm. And when you do, no one gives you this guidebook of like, hey, here's what next steps are. And so it is. It's a very weird universe to be out and then it causes you to miss the Marine Corps even more because, you know, even though we make jokes of hurry up and wait, (laughs) but at least you had some direction. Right. right? And so like for me, when I got out and I was like, I, I literally don't know what to go do. So I went and I did the reserves for a year Mm -hmm. thinking maybe this will fill this void but after coming off active duty i just i didn't get the void and matter of fact the gunny that that was on i and i duty down there i knew him as the staff sergeant from my old unit and his name is gunny moore and and he just he just goes look man you know if you're for some people when they make the transition it's just time it's just time to move on and i was like you're right i said you know i'm not getting you know what i need out of this one weekend out of the month now some people were and that was great. And that was great for them. But mm-hmm. it just it wasn't for me. And and I think part of that, too, was being a Marine is only part of my journey, one chapter of my life. But it was also kind of, you know, and this is what I try to tell people. And I don't say this in a manner to, like, try to scare people or dangerous people. or Actually, we're very dangerous. <laughs> is, you know, we're, we're trained to become instruments of war, right? There's no sugarcoating this, right? Right. You're training me to do one thing and one thing only, mm-hmm. and that's be very effective at killing, killing the enemy. People. Yep. And what the military doesn't do a really good job of is when the last time you turn on, take that uniform <laughs> off, it's like, okay, we're going to send you back to the civilian world. Just don't go kill anybody, yeah. right? And, and it's like, you know, and I make light and jokes of that, but it, but it is seriously because, you know, we're that's who we are, right? right? I mean, the military spent a lot of money and a lot of time and energy to make us very effective, and, and now we're out here. With no guidance. Now, a lot of people, you know, and, you know, they're like, oh, you know, the military people are broken and blah, blah. They only see a few examples. They don't really give us credit, I think, a lot of times to sit there and go, actually, I haven't gone and done anything crazy, even though I am very, very capable of doing something very crazy. Mm-hmm. But we actually have a lot more self-control than what people give us credit for. Right. Now, you have a handful of people that don't. And chances are they were like that before they went in the military. Right. So when they got out, it's not that they went in the military and got broken. They were broken before they went in the military. Yeah. Right. And, and and so those are only a handful of examples. And like anything in today's media, they showcase the examples of the bad. They don't showcase the examples of the good. Sure. So there is a lot of self-control, but there is this 
like being lost in a wilderness a little bit. And you're just trying to figure out, like, what's my place in life? And that's why I went into law enforcement, because it was the most similar thing that I knew, mm-hmm. right? And, and look, I, I, was, I was a great police officer, right? I, I, really, I really believe, like, I did a really, really good job. But I wasn't unhappy doing it, but I wasn't happy doing it. I was just like, it's familiar. I'm good at doing familiar, mm-hmm. but it was what I knew. But I still had that that ticking going on in the in the back of my brain, just going, this is not it. This is not it, right? Nope. And you're trying to figure it out. So you're in college and you're trying to figure it out. What? It- it's it's identity drives activity. And that our identities changed, and that was like I didn't know what the activities were that I could do. And you know what's interesting about you and I? We joined before we were never adults as civilians. We were just brand new baby adults, and then throw into an environment that completely changed us. And then we get dumped back out in the civilian world, and we're like we were never were really an adult civilian. So our identities were really tied around that. I'm a Marine and now I'm not, I guess I am, but I don't put that uniform on anymore. So now I'm a college student. So what is that? Well, hell, I didn't know. I just, I had an objective and that was just to simply get through school and and as hard as it was. And there were many moments in college that I almost joined the police force because I had just had about enough of chemistry and organic chemistry. And especially my sophomore year, I really just paused and said, okay, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to pursue a career in dentistry? Because this is not fun. And I get it's a stepping stone, but I kind of miss the structure. I miss that stuff. I actually went and rode with an Arlington police officer and I mean, that's how close I was to just saying, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll go get a degree, but it's not going to be in all this crazy science stuff, and I'm going to get out here and go do something else. Did something just clicked. I don't know what it was. Maybe just the Marine me clicked on and said, no, just suck it up. Come on, let's do it. And I, I wrote down, I typed this thing out, and I put it on my desk, and it, it just it had my name, Justin B. Harlan DDS, in quotation marks. And I, I just said, all right, that's the goal. That's what I, I want to take those quotation marks and make that thing real. And, and I just buckled down. I buckled down and studied and worked my butt off. I wasn't the best student, but damn, I worked hard. And where did, where did you end up going to uh, college for your – For dental school. For dental school. Well, that girlfriend that I follow to Southwestern is my wife now. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, so. As soon as you said pharmacy, I was like, oh, how did I not know that y'all met in college? Yeah, we And we actually met right before I – went to the Marines right at the end of high school. We did not go to the same high school. She went to high school and, and, and that poor girl put up with four years of the Marine Corps with me. It was a rough ride writing letters and no email, just letters. Yeah, I think it's hard for sometimes the audience to understand is like, there was no email back then, right? <laughs> yeah. This was not open up your smartphone and send a message or a text or anything mm. else like that. Right. This was, this was get a letter and get some information <laughs> and then write the letter <laughs> And send it off and knowing that that letter was written three weeks ago and that your letter was going to arrive three weeks later. That was that was the world. So we moved back to Arlington and got married and I finished at UTA. So my college is really if it were 120 hours to graduate, I did 60 at Southwestern and I did 60 at UTA. And then I went to Baylor College of Dentistry in Dallas. Okay. And then and how long is that? It's four years. It's four years. Mm-hmm. So you're eight years into school now. Eight years into school. Right. And so I'm guessing you got out 22, 23, right? I was 22 when I got out. 22. Mm-hmm. So now you're now you're 30, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Are you older than the other? I was not the oldest, but I certainly was in the top Was there any other? Was there any other vets in there? There was one young lady who was an Air Force veteran, and she, that didn't, count. she didn't make the cut. Air Force don't count. Yeah, she she didn't make. No, I'm joking. Uh, I'm joking. So we make fun of the Air Force. We do. Actually, it's because we're jealous of them because they get better accommodations, better food, better it's, equipment, better everything. It's ridiculous. Their C one thirties are much nicer than in Marine Corps C one thirty. Like they, they have, give you like box lunches instead of MREs and they say have, get off my ship. They so, have insulation yeah. in their C one thirty. Oh yeah, yeah. It's not as cold. Oh yeah, you're not 
like you, you're not being forced <laughs> to sit on the floor of the plane because yes. the can't, because the because the netting Shut doesn't down. work, you know, Shut or yeah. or or the netting's <laughs> as uncomfortable as the floor, but at least the floor you had a little bit of coolness to it or whatever. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 No, I remember. I, I remember those days vividly. <laughs> <laughs> so so you're you finished in a school. What in school? What what happens then? At that time, this was this was 2005 and. I think a lot of people would look back at that time during dentistry and, and would say that was really the height of dentistry. It really was just a good time to get out of school and start a practice. Banks, why? Banks. why? Why then? Uh, Wait, or the, what year is this? It's 2005. 2005. And, and why 2005? Like, hey, you started dentist practice. I think up at that point, so cosmetic dentistry and bonded type dentistry started really in the mid-90s. What does that mean, cosmetic and bonded dentistry? Porcelain veneers, uh, tooth color filling material, all of that stuff was – it had been around for decades, but it really perfected itself in the mid-90s up until about 2005. So it's about a decade of that. And at that time, there were quite a few boutique practices, cosmetic boutique practices that were really focused on cosmetic dentistry. It was a big thing. If if you look at – go look at Hollywood – in the mid nineties and look at Hollywood in the mid two thousands and look at their teeth it was a huge shift in people fixing their teeth, both on television and around town. So the market changed and it, there was a need and a desire for wider, straighter teeth. And I think it was the height because it had been a decade of wonderfulness. They had really perfected the abilities to do that. It's better now, but not exponentially better than it was then it was a the economy was great it was there were i had classmates that was very easy for them to step out of school and just start a practice hang a shingle borrow some money and start that is unheard of today the cost of education then was cheaper so i would say that dental education now was probably three times the cost so folks were coming out some some young dentists are getting out of school now with four five six hundred thousand dollars worth of debt from undergraduate and dental education, they're already way in the hole, and it'll take them a whole career just to pay that off. That that was unheard of during my time. It was easy to go find another dentist to go work with during my time, and which is what I did. And corporate dentistry, which is the bigger boxed chain, those were around, and they were an alternative if you couldn't find somebody to go work with four but they weren't as large as they are now yeah that's kind of the norm for most dental graduates now is they automatically know they're going to go work for some corporation it's hard to find a dr harlan to go work with it's just less now less than it's ever been so it it was a great time to graduate it was a great time to get into dentistry i've I, i joined a great man who had practiced here at that time for almost 30 years and taught me a huge amount of how to run a dental practice and how to treat people right and do the right thing and and not just the clinical skills but the business side of things and i got a really great education from him he retired back in 2019 and he and i practiced together for 16 years and and what a great mentor and friend i had at a time when i i needed it we're considered a young dentist for 10 years. Really? It takes, it does. It takes a decade. That's 10 years after school. After school. Okay. It so does. you're in your 40s before you're considered, you know what you're doing, yeah. basically. Right? Really? Yeah. 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 And it, Well, you may think you know what you're doing, but, but then, then yeah. you don't. And, <laughs> and you think you know what you're doing, and then you don't. But after about a decade, I had thought I knew what I was doing, and then I didn't enough times that I could understand why a young new dentist is considered new. For 10 years and you know one of the one of the interesting things that i learned was how and i don't think a lot of people realize this right it's how much impact your dental health has to do with your heart health right absolutely so talk talk to us about that this is what i say to patients all the time especially when i meet them for the first time if you have a broken tooth that's okay. We can work through that. You and I can fix that. We can work through that. But if you've got problems with your gums, that's a non-negotiable for me. 
you have got to get that fixed because you've only got one heart and it does affect your heart and you've got to get that corrected before we do anything else. This is your life. This is your future. Take it seriously. And in fact, when people do come back into the office and we're doing some sort of gum therapy on them, I congratulate them. I congratulate them for investing in their health because you're doing something that you don't realize it, but it is extremely important for the longevity of your life. And again, going back, you break a tooth. It's fine. We can work through it. But, yeah. But this gum stuff and your, and your heart stuff, that's important. Yeah. And I, and you know, and this is the thing is it really seems very simple to me in that look in order to be in good shape, right? Naturally you got to do physical activity, mm -hmm. running, walking, hiking, lifting weights, bicycling, whatever else. But Really, it's what you put in your mouth that feeds your body with nutrition. And where's the first before it even gets to breaking down with all your stomach acids and all that to feed the nutrition is it's got to go through the mouth. Right. Right. So, I mean, why wouldn't you take care of the very thing that is going to feed nutrition to your body? But yet so many people are scared of the dentist. I've, I've always found that to be fascinating is why, why is that? It's changed. So decades ago, the manner in which dentistry was delivered was harsh. Uh, anesthetics didn't work as great. There was a lot of just suck it up. Let's just get through this. We've got to get this tooth out. We've got to get this root canal done. We've got it, whatever it is. And dentists were trained harshly. They, we, they weren't really taught kindness. And, and empathy. They were really taught about objectivity, objectivity of getting the job done and maybe not so focused on patient care. Completely changed. So in our generation and the generation behind me of dentist will change it. Not exponentially, but they're going to change it. It's better. So I think we've made leaps and bounds in that, but there are still folks that I literally, I, they, Blood pressure's out the roof. I had a guy yesterday. Blood pressure was out the roof. And very calm guy, but it was just being in that environment. We don't sedate everybody. So most people are awake and moving, and they know what we're doing, and that is unnerving for them. They don't have control. So it still exists. It, when people come to the office and say, I'm nervous, I just say, us oh, normal. Welcome to normal. We call that normal around here. Make people feel comfortable. Give them the ability to be in control. And Do they ever see like your marine stuff on the wall and get real nervous because they're like, <laughs> I got a dude that was trained how to go kill the enemy that's going to stick his fingers in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> what, what a lot of people don't know, it, they'll find out eventually that I was I was in the Marines and they don't understand that. Marine Corps doesn't have any health care. There were no dentists in the Marine Corps. We, we received it all from the Navy, and so they think I was a Marine dentist and have to let them know that, no, I was not a dentist in the Marines. I was a radio man, and I'd, I'd got dentistry delivered to me from the Navy, so I'm going to be nice and kind to you, and it's okay, and I'm not going to be busting your teeth. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. After, after people have been around me for a little bit, I do get this a lot. Like, you were in the Marines? Yeah, I was. And I can put that hat back on if you want me to. Yeah. But in this environment, I put a different hat on, and all is calm. All is good. Yeah. That's funny, man. Yeah. That's funny. So you're – so – just so for the audience knows, is Justin and I know each other through EO. We met through EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, and actually presently we're in the same forum. Correct. And so, so when Justin talks about the business element, is that's what EO is, is, is really about? Is like how to be more sophisticated in your business and grow your business. And and what's really interesting about your story is it kind of reminds me a little bit of my restaurant. Right when I first opened it up, is I was like, am I a pizza place? that also serves alcohol or am I a bar that also serves food? Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds very simplistic, but that's very, there's two different methodologies, right? right? So instead of being a dentist who also has a business, you're really a businessman that just so happens to be a dentist. Correct. Right. And then 
How far into this were you before you went, you know what, I'm, I'm really more about the business acumen of this than I am the actual being in the chair portion? That will be all rooted in EO for sure. I found EO when I was at a continuing education. I don't know why I have a hard time saying that word, a continuing education. Continuing it's just, education. It's, it's the marine in me. I have no yeah, idea. It's got too many syllables. It's way too many syllables. <laughs> <laughs> so I am an educated man, but I am also marine. <laughs> Edumacated. Edumacated. So I was at a, at a CE course in Arizona, and that's where I heard about EO. And – I, at the, up to that point, I had done a lot of CE courses that are built around just teeth and becoming a better dentist. And the the guy who was speaking is from Mexico City, and he said, if you guys are not involved in this peer-to-peer group organization like EO, YPO, you need to be because I know that you're all doctors and you're running your practices, but underneath all of that, there's a business there. So you need to be involved with these groups. Okay, what is EO? I have no idea what this is. So I went back to my room and looked it up. Sure enough, there's a Fort Worth chapter I joined. And Im- immediately when I joined the forum, you weren't in the forum yet, but I just I w- was with a just a group of really just awesome business owners. And I'm trying to pull up this business and understand it that is within the practice that I'm in. And I'm like, who am I now? So I'm going through another identity change. Who am I and what can I do? Do I really want to keep being a dentist or do I really want to be a business person like the rest of these guys were? And I want to be a businessman. I like that part. So my identity began to shift again. I love taking care of folks. I love taking care of their needs, especially those that are in really, really deep need of just really awesome care. On top of that, I really love the people that work with me. Like I said, people are business. And the, the ladies that work in my office are really my first priority. And I like developing them. And I like growing them. And I want to find other dentists to come in and I can develop and grow them as well. So that's what I was more interested in. You know, Getting better faster and doing dentistry is one thing, but... Being able to create a model of relationship-based dentistry and to scale it is a difficult thing to do. Most of the time, you lose the ability to scale that relationship because it becomes a lot more transactional. That Those folks that have gone to corporate dentistry offices, they'll understand that. They don't see the same person every time. Sometimes it's a different dentist every time, and they just they're, they're treated like really like cattle. That's not the way a normal dental office runs, but how do you scale that when the, the doctor is the practice? That's it. The doctor is the practice. How, how can you have the practice not be the doctor? It's just skills. It's just teaching people, teaching people to be able to repeat what that is over and over and over again to take a relationship-based model and put it into another practice. It's training. So – with you growing your practice, is that done organically or inorganically? And what I mean by that is just opening a new shop and then developing it, or is it making an acquisition and merging in with your current business? Both have their ups and downs. The, the model, so, and I, I have a dental partner too, and he and I prefer the model of acquisitions because that business is already cash flowing. And it's smoother entry. It's easier to have something that there is an existing culture that may need to be shifted just a little bit to ours than to start fresh. Starting fresh works great, but the negative is it's not cash flowing. And so there's a lot of attention have to be put on from the owners to be in there making sure they're putting the right dentist in there because I don't want to be the dentist that goes in there and does that. I could do that and I could make it work very fast. But that takes away from the other practice or the other practice, the other practice. So it's it's pulling myself out of the dental chair and then recreating ourselves. So acquisition models work a lot better for us and, and what we're trying to develop. So for you, how big does this get where you're like, yeah, this is where I want it to be? So big pie in the sky, big pie in the sky for me, I'd love 30 plus practices. Okay. 
that that makes sense to me. And and I taking revenue from say a, a million dollar practice who's doing what I mean million dollars a million dollars of revenue and having the ability to lead up to 5 million in revenue it just this doesn't matter what practice or what business we're talking about to be a leader to something that's creating 5 million dollars of revenue and the threshold to break up to the 10 million dollar revenue is it's a tough leadership change and not everybody can do that i can and i can and once once you get to 10 million dollars of revenue it's really Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, and the sky's the limit at that point. And we're at that point to where we're breaking that threshold of getting through to that three to five million. And so my identity—that's what I mean. Or when I said earlier about my identity is changing, about having to step away from the chair, because in order to do that, in order to be that leader, I cannot be the operator. I have to be out of the business in order to scale it. I, I use numbers as a because we all understand numbers. I use numbers as an example, but but culture too. I mean, emotional culture and turnover and all the other scorecard type pieces that matter in a business. I use revenue as as an example, but there's a whole lot of management and leadership and letting go of the vine going from three to five to 10. So right now, what we're seeing across the nation is a void in being able to employ talent. Mm -hmm. Are y'all experiencing that in the dentistry space as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's it. So I've I've been doing this for seventeen, eighteen years. It's the worst I've seen it. Yeah. What what why what what is the contributing measures of this? I have no idea. I would suspect that it's probably more advantageous for someone to sit at home and collect unemployment than it is to actually be at work right now. And I sincerely hope that changes really fast because we do need help. The business community needs solid people out there to grab the talent, develop the talent, and be a great asset to the team. And right now, that doesn't exist. I don't, I don't even have a pool of people to pick from. And I need talent. I need it in the office. I, I need to be able to scale this, but I can't. This is this is this is a real actual problem. So I'm very careful not to talk religion, politics, and gender-related issues because mm-hmm. I never want this to be a contentious, polarizing thing. So this is not meant to be a political statement, mm-hmm. but this is a real problem right now in this country that people can't hire talent. My general manager, Jeremy, old school, mm-hmm. like, man, I, I cannot find anybody to come to work because nobody wants to come to work because they're at home getting a check. Mm-hmm. Look at real estate, mm-hmm. for example, right? I mean, we were already behind the curve prior to the pandemic on having enough housing for folks. Mm-hmm. Then the supply chain disruptions where now we can't even get the materials that we need. And if we do, we're having to pay a heavy cost for them. But even if we could get the materials, you can't find anybody for work. Mm-hmm. An example. So, you know, I got a lot of TCU student off-campus investments and I had during the freeze, right, an unrelated plumbing issue come up, and it took me six weeks to get a plumber in there, mm-hmm. right? And, and and they had told me, they were like, I was like, you can't get in here any quicker. They were like, because it is you, we're getting in there at six weeks. If mm-hmm. not, it would be another six weeks. So there's – so there it, it's a void that's, that's everywhere that everybody is facing, mm-hmm. and we, we got to get people back to work. People are not going to go back to work if the government prints money and puts money in their pocket where they don't have to go back to work, right? That, I, don't, I don't care where you're at on the political spectrum, and I, I, will, I, will clearly, I will clearly entertain any opposition to somebody's mentality on that. Like, right. come prove me wrong. I am open-minded because I am trying to understand why as a nation we have elected officials that are okay with this. Like – you, because here's the deal, right? I mean, you can only print so much money before that money's not worth the same thing that it was worth, right? Yep. And and I just don't I don't comprehend this. I don't comprehend why it's okay, and and what the mentality is because you know you got them up there going, we're putting Americans back to work. I'm like bullshit. They're not coming to work. Oh, like not. we we have. 
we have more people sitting on the sidelines than what we have is jobs right now, mm-hmm. right? And I just don't understand that because if we don't, that's going to that's gonna become a, a larger problem to bear, right? And I just I'm, – I'm trying to wrap my head around that to go – and then when you look at something that requires a specific skill set like your industry, yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, what do you, what do you do? It's not like somebody just shows up one day and says, Hey, I want to be a dental hygienist. You know, can I start the day? Right. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's some schooling right there. Yes, it is. Right. And then the barriers of entry into it is like, okay, I'm going to go get this education, but I'm going to walk away with a lot of debt. Mm-hmm. So having the lack of talent pool and then finding enough desire for someone to be willing to take on that increasing debt just even creates more of a void. Yes, it does. Right. And, and so, I mean, and I can only imagine, and I do want to touch on this, is, you know, some businesses were more affected by COVID than other businesses. Mm-hmm. Healthcare, certainly one of those. Talk, take me back to March of last year and walk me through what, what was going on with you and what your feelings were when the world decided to shut down. At first, obviously there was something going on, and – I think it was the middle middle of March, the Texas State Board shut all dental practices down. So we didn't have a choice. It was shut her down. And I was suspecting that it would have been two to three weeks. We'd figure this thing out and we would come back. Nine weeks later, we finally got back to it. But there were a lot of caveats and a lot of different rules that we had to follow that were outside our normal workflow we were very fortunate that we didn't have to let anybody go. We were able to keep it going, but it was a rub. It, it was harsh. I mean, we, we had to change a lot of things outside of a COVID ward. The dental office is the most infectious area that we could be in an airborne environment. We create a lot of aerosol. So there was a lot of fear and it was a lot of, fear that was untested, unscientific. We just made a lot of policy changes that weren't around actual science-based stuff. But you can't, you cannot make science-based decisions in weeks. It takes a long time to come up with those. So we're still in it. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to shift. So we were down for nine weeks and we came back and we came back strong. There were a lot of folks that needed us. We, at, for some reason, we were considered non-essential. So if I need a root canal, you're not essential? The, the, yes. Wow. Yes. We were able to, some of the endodontists, those are the root canal specialists in town, we were able, they stayed active, and we were able to send patients that needed root canals to them. But normal routine stuff, if you broke a tooth, it was really strange. If you broke a tooth, it was like, is it profusely bleeding? Do you need to go to the hospital? Then sorry. Wow. Maybe we can get to the oral surgeon and have that out. But there wasn't a whole lot of guidance on what is right and what is wrong. It was too black and white for me, and the black and white was too extreme. It it, it made zero sense. And there was a lot of fear in the dental world that if you did something, that there could be a public outcry for you because you're not respecting, meaning we bringing patients into the office and taking care of folks, there would be an outcry from the public that you were not doing what was supposed to be done. So it was goofy. Let's just say that. Yeah. In a general dental office is what we have. Our recurring stuff are patients that come back and get their teeth cleaned. So in April, most of March, and then in April – we didn't get to pre-appoint folks. So fast forward, you know, fast forward from, from March, April to October, November, we had huge holes because no one was pre-appointed in there. But so what do you mean by pre-appointed? So you come clean. in and get your teeth cleaned okay. and then typically you'll make your appointment six months out okay. and we'll see you in six months. Well, that didn't happen in March and April. So we got busy in the summer bringing folks back and getting them in there, but there was a huge hole in October and November because no one was pre-appointed. 
and the holes were, okay, who was supposed to be here and who's comfortable coming in? And so we got really busy and then we got really slow again. And then if you remember too, in December, there was a whole, the second wave came through Mm -hmm. and that slowed us down. So it was a huge roller coaster ride. We're open, we're closed, we're, we're up, we're down. It was, it was all over the place. And then, of course, the rules would change. Now you don't have to do this anymore. I mean, you can do this now. You can't do this now. It was the ever-changing world of dentistry. Wow. And still changing. Major disruptions in cash flow for business too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And there are some practices out there that did not make it. Number one rule in business, don't run out of cash. Yeah. And we were fortunate enough to understand that concept and have it and not run out of cash and not have to let anybody go. Some practices didn't have that and they're no longer with us. So what happens, it it seems like that would create enough of a void where putting even more of a strict demand on getting into a dentist now, right? Because you got less people, kind of like real estate. You don't have as many houses to sell, Mm -hmm. but a whole lot of people that want to buy, what happens, right? We're fortunate to be in Texas. I can say that we were very fortunate to be in Texas because things have opened up and we are back rolling just as if we, nothing had happened. There are parts of this country that is not the case. They are still shut down. They're barely making it. And that's what I mean by people losing their businesses, their practices around here. It's not as we're not as affected as much, but go to other parts of the country and they're not making it. I just, I, I guess I don't understand that too. And I tried again, I'm not trying to, tackle on to a political environment or anything else, but I just don't understand how elected officials can make make it okay for businesses not to survive. I just don't, yeah. I just don't, I don't, I guess I don't understand that concept, right? Because last I checked, you need businesses to survive because they create income, which therefore creates taxes that pay for things, but instead we're just printing money left and right mm-hmm. in order to fill the void. Right. And I, and I guess I don't understand that concept either. And, and the flip side, too, is you know, most dentists are not very good business owners. And so it's on them as well. You know, they're the ones that created the revenue and got the cash. So if you decide to take that cash and go spend it all on everything else and you didn't save some for your business, then that's on them, too. So there's a responsibility on the business owner side as well. And the, the, the PPP loans have helped. They, they've helped sustain. And that's been a good thing, but it hasn't been easy. That's all I got to say. It just has not been easy. You ever, a journey. you ever wake up on some days and just like, I don't want to be a dentist, <laughs> especially right now dealing with all this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think had I not been a Marine, I'd have been a lot different person and a lot different attitude towards things. <laughs> As a Marine, you just, all right. Roll with it. Let's just go. Yeah. Roger that. Yeah. Keep going, going, baby. Rolling with it. Roll, <laughs> roll, rolling yeah. with it. We're shutting down. Roger that. So let me, let me ask you this question on insurance in the dental world, right? Okay. It just seems like healthcare insurance is all over the place, but you really don't see that much insurance or doable insurance in the, in the dental space. Why mm-hmm. is that? I think it, 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 now I'm not a historian, so bear with me, but during the 80s, the medical world really got in bed with the insurance companies, which is why now most physicians don't have a private practice. They have physician groups, and the physician groups came together so that they can make negotiations with insurance companies because, like I said, they got in bed with them. Basically, they work for insurance companies. Dentistry saw the writing on the wall and said, we're not doing that. We got very politically active and said, that's not what we want. So our reimbursements are low. So a policy is typically going to pay for $2,000 a year or something like that, which doesn't really do a lot if you need a lot. The flip side to that is, though, we have a lot of control as dentists. So we have a lot more say. The insurance companies don't have, they don't have the right to come in and tell us that we can't do that. We have to do an alternative treatment. We can choose the modalities of treatment that we want. So it's a negative because for the patient, they don't have as much, but it's a positive in that they get a little lot more choice in who they see and a lot more choice. And we have more choices as dentists to give them more options. 
So that's changing. Welcome to the world of change. Oh, yeah. And that's what I was talking about earlier about the roll-ups and things are beginning to consolidate because more and more bigger groups can go in and negotiate better rates for insurance companies. And so when you're a mom-and-pop practice like us, that's hard to compete with. So what do we have to do? We have to start rolling up so we can make our own negotiations. And there are actually companies out there that do it for us. Really? To help negotiate with insurance companies for the mom-and-pop locations. Wow. So what about what about technology? So technology is making a lot of advancements and, mm-hmm. and so forth. What kind of technology advancements are you seeing in the dental space? Oh, um, a lot of – so the workflow in dentistry had a lot of – we'll call it analog – when I started, but now it's really switched to digital. So most of what we can do now, we scan. So I would say definitely in five to 10 years, that goopy stuff that the impression stuff that we would put in your mouth is mm-hmm. going to go away. It's, it'll still be there, but it will be used a lot less because we scan teeth it goes into a computer model and we can send that straight to the laboratory and fabricate whatever it needs. I had a case yesterday where we created a night guard, a night guard, something someone wears at nighttime to protect their teeth. And we scanned his mouth and sent that to the lab and they created everything via scan. Hmm. And it fit perfectly. No adjustments. Just here you go. Feels great. Done. So what's it like transitioning your office to buy that technology to do that. Is that pretty expensive? It, it Yes. In, in terms of how much it costs up front, but in the long run, it pays off because most of that equipment does last a while. If it, if it was like a computer that was only going to last you two years, it, yeah, it, it wouldn't be worth it. But most of that technology, the barrier to entry is, is huge on, on cost, but it's going to last five to 10 years. Even if the technology changes in that time frame, because you know it will, it still works. It still functions because at the the end user is the laboratory, and the laboratory they can't afford to be changing every two years. So they're going to get on what's the big bandwagon of of whatever equipment that it is, and they're going to run with it for a while. So yes, things will change in the next two to five years, but it's not going to change so much that we have to like go buy a whole brand new equipment system which can be very expensive. So going back to your time in the Marines, how would you say that even after kind of the wandering through the forest to get to where you would ultimately get plays a role in your success today by what you got out of becoming a Marine? So August 27th, 1993 was the day I graduated boot camp. It was the day I became a Marine. And I was sitting on the steps of the theater, and I knew in that moment that there is nothing in this world that I could not accomplish. If I had just been this poor kid from the east side of Fort Worth who went there and became a Marine and did something that was probably the hardest thing I'd done in my life up to that point, there's nothing that I couldn't accomplish. So take that through every challenge I've had in life and let's go get some because I'm going to make it. I don't quit. When the vision is clear, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. So it doesn't matter if it's a challenge of, Hey, we're shutting down or, or this person's quitting tomorrow or Hey, my son is sick. It doesn't matter. I will get through it. I will accomplish it. I will achieve the goal, whatever it is. There's no mountain high enough. So what do you do to reset yourself or center yourself? I mean, because, I mean, look, we, we all have to take a break from what we do, mm-hmm. right, in order to go get our brain housing group uh, straightened out. And I already know the answer to this, but the audience doesn't. So what, <laughs> what does Justin do to go get his brain reset? So anything outdoors, anything that's hard and difficult to do. Five years ago, five, six years ago, I did the Extreme Seal Experience in Virginia. 
I got my butt kicked by a bunch of active duty SEALs and I busted my head up. I wish I could show the picture of that. And I was in such a happy, happy place. In two weeks, I'm going to climb two mountains, Mount Baker and Mount Rainier in Washington. I go backcountry. If it has to do with the mountains and backcountry, I am there. Later this year, I ran my first half marathon 11, 12 years ago. is the Marine Corps Half Marathon in Fredericksburg, Virginia. I ran my first marathon, the Marine Corps Marathon in Washington. And then later this year, I'm going to run my first ultra, and it's the Marine Corps Marathon Ultra in Washington, D.C. If it's hard, this is, a, this is a statement we have in my house. I don't know that my wife and children agree with this, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's my motto. If it doesn't suck, we're not doing it. Yeah. Matter of fact, I was supposed to go with you on that little mountaineering trip till I had a little skiing incident a couple months ago. I wasn't going to say anything, Jarhead. Yeah, man. You know, and it's and it's funny. I've talked about this on a couple episodes too, where the difference of being hurt and injured. Right. Right. Like you can make it through hurt, but when you're injured and something stops functioning, and it was, I mean, man, it jacked with me. It still jacks with me mentally because I was like. Man, that's all I want to do is go up there on this, what was it, nine days, right? Nine, nine days. Nine day mountaineering, you know, up on the mountain. Mm-hmm. You 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 come down with everything you went up with. And I mean, everything. Yes, sir. Everything. And, you know, but at the same time, I had to come to the reality, you know, the realistic, you know, decision of what I don't want to be is up on that mountain and I become a burden on everybody else because right. – my knee is not functioning, right. right? And it was really weird because I can't believe that it was just, and it wasn't even anything sexy on this skiing incident, right? I mean, it was just a goofy fall, sure, right? I wasn't doing like some flips or anything else. And I'd be <laughs> like, well, you know, yeah, I hurt my knee, but it was a dope-ass story, you know? I mean, it was just like something so simple. And, and, and you know, and a part of it too was, is like out of all things that were going to, you know, essentially break my knee, it was that right. out of all the other dumb things I have done for the other almost half century of my life, it was falling funny skiing that did it. And that, and I, and I think that was also a part of the uh, emotional battle inside of me was just the, what it was this that did it. Like right. what the hell? But the older we get, we, we do have to be smarter and not harder, right? Because, again, I didn't want to be on top of a mountain and be a burden of like, well, all right, this thing just went from bad to worse, and now what do we do, right? right. I mean, because, you know, you're kind of up thousands of feet in snow, rough terrain, right? And I was yep. just like, yeah, it was just, it's still, it's still annoying. And, and so, you know, this year we get it fixed and, you know, Maybe next year, go take a, another run at it. But it was mm-hmm. just, you know, and I think, too, it, it was also mentally jarring for me. It's because after coming out of COVID and lockdowns and all the insanity is I was like, man, I just want to go test myself because I like testing myself. Right. Mm-hmm. You and I talk about this all the time, doing mm-hmm. things that test myself, yep. pushing that, as you say, if it doesn't suck, we're not doing it, you know, pushing to that next level whether it be in business, whether it be physically. And I was really looking forward to go doing that. And then now it's like, oh, hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it has. It's been extremely annoying. And it's even more annoying that knowing that you're going to be up there here in, what, another <laughs> two weeks, and I'll be back here. And, and I'm sure you'll come back with all kinds of photos and videos and stuff. And I'll have to unfriend you on Facebook or something because I don't want to hear it. I'll let you know that it was the best trip ever. (laughs) (laughs) So you got an ultra, you got a mountaineering trip. What what else is on the horizon for you? I think next year I'd I'd love to build up. I I don't know. I'm getting closer to 50, and I'd like to run 50 miles by the time I'm 50. I'd like to do a a running 50-mile run. That's on there. I do want to climb Kilimanjaro. I'd like to do Everest Base Camp Trek. There's a there, there's some some international travel that I want to do for mountaineering. This mountaineering school is just to open up the opportunities that I don't know exist for the extreme things that are out there. Let's kill it. Let's yeah. go do it. Yeah, sitting sitting here was it 
If you want to be comfortable, go ahead and get in your coffin. <laughs> I'm write so. that one down here. <laughs> if you want to be care, if you want, if you want to be comfortable, just go ahead and climb in your coffin. Climb in your coffin. <laughs> so, all right. That's another thing you and I share is there's just something about the mountains, right? Mm-hmm. Especially being from Texas, mm-hmm. right? Where everything's flat, everything's hot, everything's humid. Yep. And and there's just something, I mean, I, like you've you've been up to my house, you know, a couple mm-hmm. times there in Pagosa. Mm-hmm. And it's just something about being up there with the air. It just it just unlocks something in my soul. Yes, sir. Right. That it just allows me to find internal peace. You know, some people go to the beach. Who knows? Some people go to different places, but what do you think that is about the mountains that just just absolutely peaks into our inner being? I have no idea. You know how some folks will that that's the beach for them? That's not the beach for me. I mean, hell, we were stationed at beaches for a long time and I I just didn't do it for me. There is just something about being in the awe of the majestic view of something that is just huge and wondering what it's like to be on top of that. And I have no idea what it is. It's, it, it, it is my peace place. My soul, just like you said, is at total peace in the mountains. I don't know why, Jeremy. Yeah. It just is. The first time I did that, I was about 10, 11 years old in Red River, New Mexico. And I went up there with a buddy one summer, and my soul was at peace then. Yeah. So it's not something that's new. This is something that's been a part of my life since I've been to the mountains. Why I don't live in the mountains yet? Soon enough, brother. Soon enough. <laughs> so, I'd like to encap every one of these. Cut. Going back to 20-year-old self. Not that 20-year-old self would be willing to listen to present-day self, but let's just say we knew we could turn back the hands of time because 20-year-old self would be willing to listen to one little nugget of wisdom, whether it be do this or don't do this, what would you go back and tell 20-year-old Justin if you could turn back the hands of time? Absolutely, 100%. Listen to your heart. You have what it takes. Listen to your heart and shut your brain up. that simple there have been many times where i've listened to my head more than i listened to my heart and it let me down paths that i don't need to be listen to your heart listen to the heart and you got a great big heart i think so yeah you're my buddy that's right (laughs) (laughs) all right so people want to learn more about your practice Mm -hmm. they need they need they need to get in here and, and get some some dentistry Done. Where do they go? How do they how do they find you? Where 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 is it at? Fort Worth, Texas. SmileFortWorth.com. That fort is spelled out. If you're old school and you need a phone number, it's 817-732-6622. I have a partner and an associate. We got time for you. I have an incredible staff that will make you feel special. If you don't feel special, then you tell me immediately. And in case you were driving or busy doing something, if you missed the ability to know where to go, you can always go to myexperiencedrealtor.com, click on podcast, go down to Dr. Justin Harlan, click the read more, and you will be able to click on the links in order to be able to go get your grill fixed. Thank you for coming, Justin. 